This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chad Conley. Now, Chad is not only an active duty Green Beret, but also the man behind 50 for the Fallen. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, leadership, the horrors of war, mental health, the power of rucking, his incredible nonprofit, their latest fundraiser in Hawaii, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Chad Conley. Enjoy. Well, Chad, I want to start by saying thank you so much, firstly, to Tulsi for connecting us, and secondly, for you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, you know, James, thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here, and I think this is going to be a great conversation. Absolutely. So geographically, where are we finding you on this afternoon? You are finding me in my garage in Colorado Springs. <laughs> So I'm sitting in Florida at the moment. It's like kicked up again as far as the heat. I think it's almost 90 degrees out there in almost November. So what's the weather like in Colorado at the moment? Uh, you know, you can flip a coin or change your mind as fast as this Colorado weather changes. Right now, it's um, in the 50s. It's beautiful. Pikes Peak has a little snow on it. So you get to see all the different topography on the mountain. And uh, it was a beautiful start to the day. Beautiful. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, I come from a small town in Lucas in uh, Ohio. It's called Lucasville. Uh, we have more cows than people. And, you know, my dad uh, did four years in the Marine Corps, got out and um, was a little buzzed, went into a Subway sandwich shop Next thing I know, he's sweet talking a woman who's engaged, turned out to be my mom. Next thing you know, <laughs> uh, she dumps the guy she was with. She gets with my dad. Uh, about a year or so later, they have me. And a few years later, they have my sister, and we're living in Lucasville. And small town America, not a lot of money, but dad worked for a cigarette sales. He was a cigarette salesman, of all things. And my mom worked for the state. And dad then got very sick. When I was early teens, dad starts dying. I raised my sister and my mom is trying to clapboard this thing together as best she can. And my dad's dying on us. So I raised my sister from 12 till about 19 when my dad dies. But that was all Southern Ohio startup where um, there's a fellow, Pat McAfee, who calls people, used to say Ohio F words, 
I don't know to curse or not on this, but he says Ohio F words. Now he says, okay, he says Ohio fucks and he says it as a compliment. Now he says Ohio folks and he says people from Ohio are just built a little differently. They get the job done. And that was my mom and dad living through my dad's heart disease and, you know, final death. Like it was just like my dad died clean in the house because he couldn't really do much. And, you know, that was the start for me. Next thing I know, I'm in college, 9-11 happens, dad dies, and I joined the military. And at first, I can say I did it as a higher calling, and I wanted to serve because I always wanted to. I wanted to be a missionary growing up. But instead, I did it to help out others because I felt helpless at the time. And, you know, running away from my parents, you know, my dad's death. But that turned me into who I am now. And ultimately, my sister, my sister's counterterrorism for a government organization. And she does great things for, you know, the nation now. But it came from that small town upbringing in Ohio where everyone just got to work. One thing I've been very passionate about, especially, I mean, this is what started this podcast was burying fellow firefighters and seeing them die prematurely. And then we see, you know, the the pandemic and the opportunity to really move the needle in the physical mental health world and kind of the opposite really being done by a lot of the people that we painted as leaders. You ended up in a a branch of the army that requires a high level of health, a high level of physical ability. When you look back now, were there elements around your father's death that you would think were preventable now that were, you know, environmental or, or dietary or things that had we had better education when he was young, maybe he would have had a longer life? Well, I think we had some of it for my dad. It was stress. And it was the fact of what you dwell on versus what you accept and move through. And for my dad, he had a very horrible childhood, um, abusive stepfather, drunk mom, really bad. And he never got over any of that. And he carried it on with him. And he let those demons bring him to his grave. And I really think if, you know, today we're more mindful. I can say, Yes, I'm a Green Beret. I do all that. But I also love doing yoga and meditation. (laughs) And um, I do those things. I do extremely hard labor and work. And I beat myself up all the time physically to make myself feel better mentally and emotionally. My dad, if he would have accepted and went through and spoke to somebody and just talked it out a little bit, I think, would he have died? Maybe at some point. But I don't think it would have been as bad and as untimely as it was. But no, there's... There's a lot to be said and, you know, those old folk who sit on the porch and just kind of rock in the rocking chair and talk to one another and talk out their stuff and call it a good day. I mean, most days are good days. You got two feet on the ground. Uh, my dad just couldn't see that a lot of the times. It's unfortunate, but that was his, that, that, that's what he carried. Well, it's so, so sad as well because we just, you know, we're, we're starting to peel back the onion on the mental health conversation and in your profession and in my profession there's finally some sort of acknowledgement that elements of what we do is going to have a physical cost and a mental cost, depending on how, you know, how you treat yourself, how you treat your body, how others, you know, the environment that you're brought up in. Um, but the, the, the suicide, the addiction side obviously is, is kind of more obvious when it comes to mental health, but then you've got the other side. You've got the heart disease, the cancer, the obesity. You've got all these other things where the body is projecting what the mind's actually going through. Yeah, and you, you see that a lot. You, um, I can only speak from my experiences, um, but for my guys and myself, when you're going through things, whether it's on deployment or back, whatever it is, when you start seeing that dip in performance and that dip in just capability, 
whether it's on the range, the shoot house, or just in the gym or in the team room, there's something else bringing that about. And the next thing you know, you start seeing this guy's eyes look droopy, uh, gray faced. He's, you know, tired, you know, doesn't have it, not with it in the conversations. And it all comes from something else. And then that, all those other things start bringing that down. And it, it, it's like, you know, trying to build a house of cards in the wind. I mean, you're never going to get it. And unless you go inside or change what you're doing or change your foundation, you're always just, you're just doomed to fail. Our guys in, in special operations take amazing, you know, care of themselves physically. And we're now starting to do it mentally and emotionally. I don't know about firefighters. I, I hope you guys are doing the same because I think your job and ours, when it comes to stress and when it comes to the physical side of it, it mirrors each other a lot. I mean, I mean, it just does. And for, um, for all that we go through, I think conversations like this and like what we're doing with 50, there's, there's something there as an outlet that you can use. And it's to me being able to say, Hey, it's okay just to talk. And if you want to get out there and kick yourself in the butt and do a 50 mile ruck march in 18 hours with a bunch of other savages, and then while you're doing an open and share, that's awesome. Or if you just want to do a workout or just like you and I right now having a conversation, that's good too. Just do something. Well, I think the other message, and it would have been sad if this is what your dad was struggling with partly, is early in this whole conversation, it was like, well, it was you know, what you saw at war. It was what I saw in some of the horrific crashes or fires. And so you take your father who, let's say he, you know, didn't saw some things as a Marine and he's trying to pick that apart. And they're like, yeah, but I didn't. Or, you know, it was peacetime or I was training or I was in Germany or, you know, whatever it was. And then there's that kind of um, imposter syndrome then. But having the conversation of what happened from birth through to when you put the uniform on and that is your foundation, that seems to be missing in a lot of these mental health conversations. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I do. I 100% agree. I know um, an imposter syndrome, that's something that we all deal with um, because nobody wants to be the guy that says, hey, you know, oh, I, I need help with something. There's always someone they'll say that needs it more than me. But if, if you need help, you need help. If you're in a shoot house and you're the one man and you're not going to go in by yourself, you're waiting on someone else. You're waiting for that too. You're waiting for that help there. Or if you're squatting or doing bench or whatever, and you need a spot, someone's there for you. We can be there for each other mentally too, or emotionally too. We can discuss that and have that conversation. But I don't think that we see that the same when it's absolutely the same. It's just a different, you know, a different venue. You're just internalizing all this stuff and working through it in comparison to building muscle or, you know, shooting or practicing what you're doing or being in a firehouse and you guys in a birdhouse, like working through your stuff, you're not going to try to do it all by yourself if you're doing that. So why do we try to do it mentally ourselves? It's just, it's just backwards. Absolutely. Well, you talked about, you know, being in the gym. So when you were at the school age, can walk me through what training and or sports you were playing at that point? Oh my goodness. In the school age, I was a fat kid. So, <laughs> um, for anyone who knows me, I'm like five, eight on a good day. And I was five foot eight or less two fifty ish. And my father wanted me yeah, big, big, big fat kid. My father wanted me to be, be a lineman. It's like, for goodness sakes, I'm, I'm I'm not built for this, but I would, he would be like, oh, pack on the pounds and eat. And it's like, whatever. So I found myself 
doing that kind of stuff. Now, as I got a little older and got more into me, I uh, got into competitive racquetball of all things and actually got very good at racquetball as a sport. Um, love the hand-eye coordination, love being able to slow down as everything speeds up in the game. And that was big for me. The thing in Southern Ohio is there's not a lot of money, so there's not a lot of stuff to do. So everyone played football and everybody went on Friday night and watched the team and I played and all that stuff. But it was, uh, it was not the most, um, I was not the most, most athletic kid because when my dad got sick when I was 12, you know, it's when he died when I was 19, a lot of the times I was taking care of him. So I started on the football team, did all that stuff, whatever. But the whole time my sport was taking care of my dad. That was like my entire thing and, or trying to make money to help the family. So at 16, I could drive, I could deliver pizzas. I could start working at McDonald's, work at McDonald's. Like, and there became a point, like I said, it became my sport where my dad stopped me and said, you're working too much right now. I know what you're trying to do. Cause I was putting in close to 40 hours a week just at McDonald's while going to high school. But I'm like, we need money. I need to help. And that became it. Now, Growing up, you help farming, you help working, doing all those things. So that's always there. But my sport really was, I mean, taking care of my dad was like, that was it for me. So a little bit different. Um, and then um, parenting my sister, which was odd at 12, starting to help parent her. But um, she is where she is now. So it worked out okay. Yeah. Sounds like you were very successful. So you talk about, you know, working these jobs. What about actual career aspirations? What were you dreaming of becoming when you were in high school? It's hard to think in Southern Ohio of getting out and doing anything much. But for me, it was always travel. And it sounds odd to say I wanted to travel, but I did. Um, I wanted to work in Africa. And my big goal when I was in high school was to graduate, go to college, and then go on and work at an animal rescue or like a big animal rescue in Africa, like a game preserve. And I wanted to stop poachers. That was like my big thing. So, you know, oddly enough, I went to a group that had Africa and then um, when it was going to be my turn to go to Africa, I ended up going to Iraq and Afghanistan and then uh, another group took it back. So never got to go. Um, That's on the bucket list with my daughter. We're going to take her and she's going to get to experience it and actually see, you know, that, but that was my goal growing up. I wanted to go, um, and stop poachers and work on a game preserve in Africa. In college, I was in school to be a nurse practitioner in pediatrics and I was making my way through my BSN, uh, bachelor's of science in nursing. And that's when dad died. And that's when I left and joined the military. And here we are. So, I mean, this might be an obvious question as you pro- go through high school age, you're dreaming about Africa, you're dreaming about stopping poaching, but ultimately you're really playing as, as a nurse and a parent at home. Is that what sent you through the nursing route initially? Yeah, it was. Absolutely, it was. It was taking care of my dad and it was taking care of my sister. And I'd always always had a penchant for helping kids, which my dad actually instilled in me. But that's, yeah, that's where it stemmed from was having to take care of my sister as a, as a young kid myself. And then seeing, and like we lived at the Cleveland clinic, we lived in Southern Ohio. We drive the three and a half hours, go to Cleveland. Um, once a month, sometimes more than that, we were in Columbus or in Cleveland at a, you know, a surgeon or a cardiologist office, 
And that's where I spent a lot of my time. So it just made sense. I was exposed to it from a young age. So you tragically lost your father. Can you walk me through what made you stop the nursing route and what sent you into the military then? Yeah. Um, July 15, 2002. It's 3.03 and I pull into the driveway and I uh, go into the house and I find my dad dead on the floor. And I went through and I was in nursing school at the time. So I tried to resuscitate him, try to do everything, you know, and his lips, he's cyanotic, his lips are purple. He's out. You've seen people like this. You know what someone who looks like who's just too dead to bring back looks like to say it like that. So I, um, I know he's gone. So I take care of everything. When the paramedics come in, I explain everything. I go through it with them. And then my mom and sister are out getting his pain meds. And when they come back, you know, I remember my sister saying, like, it's never going to be okay. And I was like, no, it will. This is life. It's going to be fine. This is just, this is what we're living right now. And then I started thinking about, well, what am I living for? Not in that moment, of course, because I'm dealing with this tragedy and sadness. But then that started actually sitting on me. Why am I doing this? What am I doing? Who am I doing this for? And I bury my dad. I go back and I'm in spring semester because it's just like a two years for your bachelor's of science at nursing at Shawnee State in Southern Ohio. And I'm back in school writing, do this for dad, do this for big A. That was his nickname. And I um, started thinking, no, I'm not doing this for him. I, I need to do for me. And that led me into a recruiter's office where I wanted to be a linguist. And instead of going to be a linguist, the silver tongued devil talked me into trying to be in special forces <laughs> and not going to lie. Uh, that's what it was. He's like, Hey, you can speak, you can learn a language and be a green beret and all of this. And my dad was stationed in Okinawa, which led me because he spoke about the green berets over there, which led me into, okay, sure. But, um, the moment came when I saw my dad pull up in garage three Oh three, never get it. Seen it in my car, go into the house, find him dead. And then realizing as I peel back those layers, who and what am I doing my life for, which was for him and to, you know, take care of him and medical and all this. And the, the most tragic, but best thing that happened was I was able to step back and be like, okay, sadly, my dad's out of his suffering and pain because he had neuropathy of his feet and all these other bad things that happened to him after his heart had issues and he was out of pain and I didn't need to, I did not need to carry his pain anymore. So I found my way into my own life, which I've been very fortunate since. I can see as well how subconsciously the nursing route was with a hope that you were going to be able to fix him. And then once this was, you know, made permanent in the most tragic way that sent you into a complete kind of self-assessment now, all right, well, I'm not able to fix him anymore. What does the rest of this look like? Yeah. Yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head. And then I had to start self-assessing my, you know, me. And I put myself in therapy actually after he died. And I just went, spoke to a therapist for about nine months, 10 months straight of just pretty intensive. This is my life. This is my childhood. This is what happened. My dad died. Ex you know, how do I accept, move on and grow as a person? And I'm, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I didn't spiral and like dive into the, you know, my asthma of sadness that can come from it. But I just, 
you know, I also had to keep being a parent to my sister. So I didn't have time to dwell on a lot of that at the time, but it was good. And, uh, yeah, I got to figure out who I am and, uh, you know, uh, I'll be 40 this Christmas and I'm still learning who I am as a person, which I love because I'm still discovering things and trying to keep myself somewhat young. Cause I don't have my, my daughter will be two in January. So if I'm going to be the old dad, I got to be the old fit dad mentally and emotionally because you know, having a daughter, that's going to be, that's going <laughs> to gonna be its, its own thing. Yeah. You got to make sure you're still intimidating when the boyfriend opens the door. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I got I got some really big friends at group I could bring over at a drop of a hat and be like, "Hey, come on over and say hi." Uh, but no, it, yeah, it'd be fine. <laughs> now, just as a you know, sad coincidence, it appears that you had something accidentally put in place that I talk about now after the evolution of all the kind of knowledge and aha moments I've had with this. The the life that we have before the uniform. I think where certainly in the first responder profession, we do a huge disservice is we do not even attempt to give any sort of counseling or mental health guidance at the front door of the profession. And to me, that's such an amazing opportunity to not only create a relationship with a counselor, but also offload some of this childhood trauma. Now, you lost your father. You put yourself through counseling. In retrospect, did processing all that trauma before you really got embedded with the Green Berets serve for mental resilience through your career? Absolutely. Because well, I, counseling, yes, because it gave me a foundation to understand what's going on within me. Um, going to bed hungry does a lot for your mental resilience. And I'm not trying to make this like a woe is me thing because many, many people have it way worse than I did and still do. And I'm very fortunate to be who I am and where I am. But Letting your sister eat more food than you so she can have, you know, a more full belly going to bed for dinner, that, that's mental resilience and toughness. That right there, knowing, like I grew up as an artist, I was painting and drawing and doing all that stuff. And I had a couple like places hit me up and I couldn't do their camps and their like programs because we didn't have the money. And one year a guy came to the house, Hey, we want to do this. We'll, you just come, you do this, you pay this, but we'll take care of everything else. And I had to turn it down because my sister needed more new, she needed new clothes. So um, that's mental resilience and toughness. The talking to uh, Dr. Joe that I did uh, in Portsmouth, that was good. That was realization, but there's something different about it when you have to like, when you know this is what you have to eat, whatever it is. But I can just say that. That's the mental resilience that gets you through because you're like, it's not that bad of a day. You know, I remember we have this thing we do in our selection process to be a Green Beret called the STAR um, where you have to do land navigation. And it's over a, a quite a long, long distance. So I'm doing the land navigation. And I remember going from my last point, going to my last point and not having a lot of time because I went the wrong way at one point, my fault. Turned it around, was going to it. And I wanted to be a day one and done. So I'm running. And as I'm getting tired and I'm hurting, I'm like, you're not in pain. And I remember telling myself, talking myself out loud, you're not in pain. Your dad, when he couldn't walk and tried to lose all that weight and do all that stuff, that's pain. You're not in pain. 
you're not tired. You're not hungry. You've been hungry. You've been tired. This isn't it. You've been worse. So be better. And I just remember taking off running and made my last point. Yay. Hooray. Um, could have done it the next two nights, but I was like, I want to be one and done and just eat and sleep. But that right there, like that's a point where I understand like, nah, you can do more. So having that as a young child really, and through my formative years of my teens really made it in a lot of ways easier to do some of the harder courses the military has because of the life I lived. I mean, some of the toughest people I know in special operations did not come from the best of lives and they're not the biggest and strongest and fastest people, but mentally nothing will ever break them. So I, I really think the foundation started, you know, there, the therapist was good, but hunger is better to te- as a teacher. Beautiful. Now you mentioned about being quite heavy for your frame when you were younger, finding racquetball. What tools did you use on the the physical side aside from racquetball? And also, what about nutrition? Because ultimately, that's really the goal for weight loss. So, what what did you change that got you to the point where you were, you know, an obese young man to mm-hmm. you know a, a green beret of all things? Yeah, what changed me was. I was playing racquetball. I was actually playing racquetball the day dad died. I was playing with um, our dean of admissions at Shawnee. Really good player. He and I would play all the time. And, you know, I um, I kind of just uh, was in the shower one day and looked down and I was disgusted with how I looked. And I thought, this isn't how you're supposed to be as a person. So... I started just monitoring what I ate and you know, when you don't have a lot of money, bad food's cheap. So bad food's easy to eat. So I started budgeting my money first and thinking, okay, where does my money need to go if I want to change who I am? So the first thing I did was I wrote down a simple budget with a little bit of money that I had and said, okay, I need to shift my funds from where I'm thinking it's a fun time to taking care of me. And it started with a budget. And then I started thinking, okay, how much money do I have for food? I have this. Okay, what food is good for you? Eat those things. So I started basically almost green facing before green face, <laughs> but still trying to, you know, have um have enough money in my pocket to pay for gas and help out with my sister or whatever else. Now, as I went into my military career and everything. Uh, we have an amazing thing, a group called, um, it was called Thor, uh, Thor 3. Um, I think they've since changed it to like human performance and wellness. But we have our own strength coaches, dietitians, personal psychs, uh, sports psychologists, uh, you know, performance psychologists. We didn't have any of that in 06 when I came into the green, to be a Green Beret in 03 when I joined the military. So a lot of it came from just talking to people better than me and asking questions, which I've never had a fear of asking why. And I started figuring out, okay, if it comes from a box, it's probably bad. (laughs) If it comes out of the ground or you got to feed it with something, it's probably good. And um, slowly just went to eating more like that. But it can be tough at times trying to, you know, eat clean, be well. But in the military, they do a great job of feeding you the best that they can when you're eating in a chow hall or deployed. Like deployed eating is the best. 
I mean, I don't know if you ever got to go over as a firefighter and work, but like that's the best time is when you're deployed because they actually do a really good job of the food. And then if you're working with the locals like we do in, uh, you know, in special forces, you get fed very well, very healthy. And the whole time, all you can do is work out, train and go for the next mission. Yeah, so I actually had a couple of guests that work in the Phil 3 program, and it was phenomenal to hear, you know, not only the prevention side, but the rehabilitation side, that something is absolutely absent in most fire departments. Yeah, that's unfortunate. The The preventative, the prehab, to me, I think is one of the most important things that we can do and we don't, is trying to make sure, hey, are you getting the sleep you can get? Because as a new father... Um, if you're on call like a firefighter or when you're deployed, you get the sleep you can get. You're not going to get the best sleep. And then with that prehab, it's okay. How am I mentally taking care of myself? How am I physically taking care of myself? Am I working out towards my job or to look good naked? I mean, I hate to say it like that, but it is what it is. And, you know, with Thor 3, when it came on board, I believe it was around 2008, 9, Deb Canada brought it forward. She's out here in Colorado. The woman's amazing. Um and when Deb Canada brought in the original Thor 3 coaches and tried to make human optimization what it is in special operations, that's what it went to. It went away from like the bro science gym, which is okay to bro science at times and just, you know, lift and buys on Friday, on like, you know, chest on Monday, buys on Friday, whatever you do. If that's, if you can get in the gym and do that some, God bless you. And it went more towards how do we move and keep guys moving later in their life in special operations. And the Thor program does a great job of that. Prehab being strength conditioning, mental resilience, the dietitian we have, you know, Kelsey's amazing at 10th group. Um, we have a, we have a cheat code in Kelsey, our dietitian, but now seeing where it's taking, I really wish you guys could, um, just basically steal our entire program. Just look at it and be like, okay, cool. Let's do that. There's no need to reinvent it. We have the same kind of physically and mentally and emotionally demanding jobs. Take what we have and run. But the team we have out here at a uh, 10th group, they are, uh, they're truly, truly way better than we deserve. I mean, the coaches and the dietitian, they're absolutely amazing. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, in the military, it seems like the Thor 3 or you know, whatever it's the, the new name is now is revered within many of the branches. And it just makes perfect sense. And I've had so many people on here that are in special operations, special forces from around the world that say we hold police and fire kind of to the same standard. And we're literally protecting your loved ones where you're deployed, protecting this country. So to to have that kind of um, lens, but then when you look behind the curtain, the the low bar that's actually set, the lack of um, resources a lot of these men and women have access to when it comes to physical health, mental health, training, nutrition, etc. It's such a disconnect. Excuse me, a disconnect. And then, as you said, you, there is so much wheel inventing because everyone's so siloed. And I think that's that's what this podcast is about. Whether it's you know within a different city next to you, in a different state, in a different country, there are people who've already figured stuff out on most things in the world. All we got to do is have the humility to say, hey, can you teach us how you did that and then mirror it in our own way in our organization? Yeah, the word humility there, that's the hard word to say. It, it, you know, I mean, you have to first be humble enough to admit that you have a blind spot. And you got to be enough, you know, humble enough to say, okay, I don't know everything, but you know more than me on this. 
we have a guy out here who we actually lost as our psychologist, uh, performance psychologist, Dr. Nick Bartley, that um, I'll give you his contact when we're done here. Nick actually is now the performance psych for one of the cities in Denver. I think it's Aurora, but he is now for their firefighters. And that's oh, what really? he does for them. Yes. And that man did more for 10th Special Forces Group in performance psychology and for SOCOM because what he did was adapted by some of our other units. And he's amazing. He's a, a very intelligent individual and he's someone who doesn't just say it, he does it. We actually were going to do a uh, 100-mile run one day, he and I. We were going to do 125 laps around a little pond near our houses. And he got to mile 40 in his, um, the, he had a, his navicular drop. He had a navicular drop. So his actual bones in there gave out and he couldn't go anymore. And he was like limping through and he's like, no, mentally I can go. And I was like, but physically right now, this is going to be too much. You, you now need surgery to fix some of the stuff and he had to get it. But he's a guy who lives and does it. But there's a lot of crosstalk that can happen. I was our uh, master breacher for 10th group there for a little bit. And I was actually talking to the firefighters on how to get into certain facilities because I know what it is to use demo and shotguns and some tools and such like that. You guys do it when things are on fire. So we may take fire. We're trying to do it you know, as quietly, surreptitiously. You're doing it when things are on fire and people are inside. That is a different level. And you guys are experts at that. So I loved coming to the firefighters and the when I first took over the job, I went and I was like, Hey, here's who I am. Here's what I do. I don't do it as well as you guys. Can you please come out and just teach me one-on-one -on -one, and then we'll bring some students in and we'll learn. It made to a great relationship. And you know, the, the fire uh, fighters we have on Fort Carson are amazing. They've got an, they've got some great training facilities and we started to be able to use those, but it all comes because you have to be able to say like, hey, I don't know it all. Um, you had brought up imposter syndrome. That's one of the things people fight with imposter syndrome because they don't want to look like they don't belong if they, make a, if they bring a question up like I don't know. But that's why you're there is to learn. And it's okay to say you don't know. It's okay to say you need help. I go back to what I said. If you're in a shoot house and you're the one man and you have to go to the next room and no one's behind you, you're going to say, give me one. You're going to get someone with you. It's the same thing here. You just need help. Just, just give me one. Okay. Now you can go. We just, yeah, I, I we've got to be okay with saying we don't know everything. We got to be okay with asking for help. But, um, when you're five, eight from Southern Ohio and you don't look like the guy who does the job, you don't have the ego to go with it. So it's kind of easy for me to ask for help. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, no, I had to as well. I mean, I was a you know English farm boy that became a firefighter in America, so there was a lot of questions. Even like, what does this mean? What, what is a fanny pack? <laughs> that means vagina <laughs> in England. I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, you got a yeah, you got a different story there, my friend. Um, <laughs> well, the Green Berets, I think, what makes you guys unique, and what's always really interesting having you know Green Beret guests is 
you know, your biggest weapon is your your conversation, your ability to be a, a diplomat and work with these different groups and become the force multiplier, which is a, a term I absolutely adore because it's kind of what I view this podcast now. I used to sit in a seat on a vehicle, go to an emergency for 14 years, and then now through this crazy medium that's evolved, I'm able to talk to thousands of people through through the guests that I have on the show. Um, so I understand that you know, you're not out there kind of, the, the, the main goal isn't to be in there kicking indoors, but I always like to ask anyone who's deployed, because I think it's an important question, um, a, a two-part question. And the backstory of it is in the media, um, and obviously Tulsi is one of your friends, and so <laughs> you know it's, it's very evident as far as uh, the, the leans of our two mainstream branches. Um, we either get a very pro-war or a very anti-war rhetoric through our two mainstream branches. And so, to me, the storytelling of what actually happens, what we ask our young men and women to do overseas for this country is very, very rarely told. So the first part of the question, um, regardless of the politics that sent you to a certain place, wherever that was in combat, was there a point in your career where you realized face-to-face that there were some horrific people that needed to be dealt with? Yes. Yes, I can, I, I can say that. Um evil people mean people we're all just people but there's bad people everywhere and that i have to go places to do things for this country because i was required to yes but i'm not someone that can judge someone at the end of their life but i would say that yes there are some people out there that are no longer living who are doing horrific things to the local populace, to the children, to us. And we were asked to do a job and we did it. But it's it's still a job I would never I would never change this, even with those parts of it. Because I think it's important that people hear, you know, the environment. And we had a guest, um, I think it was Raul Martinez recently, and he was a, a young um, army soldier. And I think when he was deployed was when all the decapitation videos were coming out. And, you know, it's just we forget that a young, bright eyed kid that comes out of the, you know, comes out of high school and sees the army recruitment videos. And then it's like, OK, I'm, you know, rock music and jet skis. Let's go. And then, you know, they're overseas. And I think it's it's important that we hear and you don't have to go into detail at all if you don't want to, but that we hear some of the some of the situations that these young men and women are sent into that we're asking them then to follow, you know, rules of conduct and, and then, uh, you know, engage with these individuals because, I don't know. For me, we just, you know, it, it's so, uh, it's such a, a token to play patriotic music as coffins come back draped with American flags. That doesn't really paint the picture, as horrific as that is, of what we're actually asking our men and women to do. So each of these different voices I've had on the show that have been deployed and told their stories, it's an important kind of piece of this massive puzzle so that the average civilian like myself can really understand what we're asking our men and women to do next time a politician starts posturing and getting ready to send our children off yet again. Yeah, it's tough because like we're in special operations. I don't care what branch of the military you're in. If you're in special operations, you have trained yourself to be able to turn off certain things and turn on certain things. 
if you're just a regular kid who drives a truck or you do a logistician job or things like that, and you get dunked into that water, you're not ready for it. And it's rough. And one of the, some of the toughest people I know are some of the truck drivers that we had for one of the deployments in Afghanistan. And this one guy had been hit seven times as a driver of an IED and they took him off the line and they made him put him in charge of our flight line where we were. And the guy's eyes didn't track right now, didn't dilate properly with light, you know, exposure. And I pray, I still think about that guy and I pray that like mentally, you know, he's still there. I hope that they didn't, it didn't get knocked loose, but he, he loved his job. He loved being over there, which is kind of like the, it's like, okay, yeah. But like, brother, I hope you're well. And I truly do. Like we would go out with all these packages overhead, you know, helicopters and planes and ISR and all these things to see and connect and communicate with us and do all this. A lot of those guys didn't have it when they did those convoys or those, when they got ambushed or they had these missions and yeah, that it's tough. You know, there's some stuff that happened, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan where, you know, I saw those decapitation videos. I got sent one, one of my, um, one of the guys I worked with, local guy, he, um, you know, we were going after these guys and I was the one talking with the locals to get the information so we could go target. And he got sent that uh, ransom video and they thought this one Iraqi family had money and they didn't. And it was a 19 year old boy or 19 year old man and about a 12, 10 year old boy. And in the video, the little boy's there and he's terrified because he knows what's going to happen. And they uh, decapitated the 19-year-old, and we got the video. And that's that's life. That happens. It's rough. Um, and it, it, it was horrible. I just, you know, but those are the things that do happen. And you you can only do your best to where they don't do it again. Take that however, however you want. But that's that's part of it. And it's tough. And that's the stuff where to plug it, you do 50 miles in 18 hours. And the whole time you're talking and walking through, you have a time there where you can bring that stuff up and you're talking with people who have dealt with it themselves or seen things. And you're able to say, okay, I'm not the only one. And that's probably the same for you as a, you know, as a firefighter, you have seen some things that you should not see. And you have to go to sleep and see that in your, you know, when you close your eyes. And you got to be able to talk about that and get through it, or it's always going to stare back at you. Absolutely. And that's, like I said before, the reason I ask these questions is because as horrific as some of these stories are, that's the point. You can't disnify everything that comes back from war. Otherwise, we'll just keep sending people there mindlessly. You know, there are horrific people that need to be targeted, and we have to pick and choose the time where we deploy our men and women to to take care of that. I want to just ask you the other side of the question. You touched on the fact that, you know, people were terrorizing women, children, you know, and men in their own countries. I think that's another um, thing that the media portrays very poorly is, oh, we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan, which couldn't be further from the truth. We're, uh, you guys are hunting down extremists within those countries that are also terrorizing their own people. And you just told a story about that very thing. So talk to me 
about moments of kindness and compassion that you witnessed amid these combat zones, whether it was the native people themselves or whether it was the, from the men and women that you served alongside? Yeah. Um, I've told this story before. I apologize if someone's heard it on another podcast. 2010-11, I'm in Iraq. And where I am, the local bad guys to say, say, you're not having Christmas. Well, I didn't like that. So I started a toy drive. And I said, we're going from suicide bombers to sleigh bells. And we actually raised a bunch of money and clothes and food and toys. And when I had my guys that were going to distribute this to the local churches, they're like, are you just giving this to the Christian kids? I was like, no. I said, this goes to every kid. This goes to all the kids out there. And the next thing you know, we've got photos and videos and these mosques and these churches and these other places where these kids are all in big, big lines and they didn't have a Santa Claus, which was a bummer. I wanted to go do it, but I wasn't able to get out to go do it. But we were able to give these kids who didn't have anything, something like kids who didn't have well-fitted shoes, got boots for winter because where we were, it snowed in the winter in Iraq. So it's like now they have something for their feet. They all have socks. They've got some, some money. Those things were amazing. I had people that worked with me that um, certain information is worth a certain amount of money. And at the time the military was doing that, we were able to give like knock on doors and give cash. It was awesome. And through that, they gave me a dog, funny enough. And um, my team leader at the time, his, uh, we brought the dog back to America and his sister, uh, she probably still has. So Rip It are these horrible drinks that we drink over there as energy drinks. They're called Rippets. That was the name of the dog. We actually took one of the Rippets and bent it and made it into a little tag, a little collar. And that's what we gave. And, you know, they're like, you need a dog here. And it was awesome. You know, there were people over there that I would, if they were here in America, I would trust my daughter. And we actually got back my last deployment uh, for interpreters. One of them is now in the United States Army. He was an Afghan um, interpreter, joined the United States Army, came over and is now serving in the U.S. Army. And I mean, once again, you're, bad people are bad people. There's good people everywhere too. And you know, that's one thing I don't think we understand enough is that those folk over there were going to their jobs, putting food on their table for their kids, and trying to love their families as best they could. And a very, very small percentage of them were the problem. And they were, it was tough because a lot of those folks knew why we were in that country and they were grateful for it. And, you know, you, you always want to do more. That's what's tough. I was extremely fortunate to have uh, Johnny Walker, his code name, um, who was um, one of the commandos, started off as an interpreter loosely, but then became a commando with the SEALs. Um, and he was brought over to the US. And then Wally Tasleen, who works with the Black Rifle guys now, but he was, huh? yeah, he worked with the Green Braves over there. Yeah. And so you hear, you know, their stories. And again, it's like, th these are the voices that we need. These are the voices that we needed during the withdrawal. I actually brought um, Fahim Fazli back on, who was uh is, is afghanistan excuse me afghani moved to the u.s became an actor paused his acting 
you know, career to go and attach with the Marines as an interpreter for a few years. He was actually in 12 Strong and then went back to Hollywood again. But these voices, you know, when you hear from Boots on the Ground and then you hear the men and women that they served alongside that are American talking about their their courage, you know, again, you, you tar with the same brush, all of a sudden that disappears. And these are just, you know, human beings being terrorized. So it was such a powerful perspective. So I appreciate you you telling that story as well. We're going to get to 50 for the fallen. Obviously, the fallen element is is a big part. This podcast was born out of, you know, multiple funerals. As you start progressing through your career, you know, were there any significant casualties that really started that wheel turning in your own heart as far as ultimately doing something more, you know, for the men and women that you lost? 2007, I lost a really good friend of mine, Patrick Kuchba. And Pat's death, all those years later, galvanized this. And the first one of these I did, 50 milers, to go through my own stuff was in 2020. And Pat's death galvanized it. And it made me want to do something. And I just kept thinking about his uh, wife and son. And friends of mine who were on his detachment every year get together to be with his family and they make sure they're never forgotten. And I got a couple more, yeah, friends who committed suicide and friends who died in combat that just every day it's like, yeah, man, like, can I just have that back? I got a friend who went into the military who committed suicide that just, it's like, can I, can I have one conversation back with you just to see if we could talk about it and just see if something could be better. And you know, that that's, that's where this stems from. It's people like Terrence, people like who was an individual who was larger than life. Um, he was South African, amazing, amazing person. And that hurt. Cause he and I had talked the day before and I was going to call him that day and I just didn't. And I just, you know, I still regret. And, and, you can't regret, you know, I mean, it, it's unfortunate and it's sad. I mean, I mean, not calling him his death. I'm always going to regret and be sad for, it. but like, I can't blame myself. Oh, I didn't call him. I should have, I don't know what would have happened, but that sits on me. Pat's death is one that will always like, yeah, I don't know. I just, that's, that's one that stuck. And then a bunch of, I had a bunch of guys die um, who were in the course with me the first year after we got out of the course together. You know, uh, first two years, really, if you think about it, Pat, Rob, um, Kettle, Eric Van, like all these guys who, like, in the course were just close and, like, really good friends, just all gone, like, just burn out fast. And it's like, man. And that's, you know, to be long winded, I apologize for this. For the Memorial Day 2022, 50 for the Fallen, we started at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda. We went to Arlington National Cemetery and I said a little speech before we crossed the bridge in silence. And then about halfway through, I said, enough of that. And we just started running and yelling and raided the cemetery to let them know we were there for them. But every day, those families, Pat's family, all my other friends' family, Terrence's mom, they feel the mental, emotional, and physical sadness that we put our bodies through for that 18 hours. Every day of their life, they feel that. Every day of their life, they have to live through that. And 
we can do that for just that little bit and brief moment of time. And while going through and doing these rucks, some of those names get brought up. And you talk about your friends who aren't here anymore or why you're still in the job or why you're doing this 50 miler. And a lot of it comes because of the person that was to your left and right who are no longer there. And because you're still there, it's your, it's your job to still do. At least that's what I think. So that's a, that's a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. No, don't apologize. I like long-winded answers. That's how you actually you know paint the picture properly. Um, well, I want to kind of get to you know the genesis of Fifty for the Fallen and and you know you're kind of heading towards the transition out. But before we do, I've watched the pandemic itself, the the lockdowns, the two years of you know however people would perceive those two years as really starting to. Um, exhibit the mental health element that that contributed, that that amplified. And, you know, in the fire service and law enforcement and civilian world, we're seeing seemingly a lot more um, issues now, whether it's suicide, overdose, etc. Another area, though, where I've had conversations on this podcast already, but I can just see it in the, the veterans that I know, and I've heard some of the stories, is you serve in Iraq, you serve in Afghanistan. When you are there at that moment, you are making a difference, but then there's a political decision to withdraw. And then maybe, you know, now you're seeing the places that you fought for, the places that you lost men and women, and now it's it's taken back by certain groups. Without loading the question at all, what has been your perception of, of the, the withdrawals? And also, have you witnessed a, a mental health element on, you know, the men and women that you serve alongside? Um, I'll answer withdrawals first. For me, you know, I, I, I can't change what happened, what was said, what, what was done. All I can do is all I can do is know that I while over there, I did the best job I could to make sure that the people that were in the areas that I worked were safe and you know were taken care of. Did it affect me? Did it mess me up when we pulled out? Yeah, in some ways, because it's like, and this, I mean, this is just the, hey, I'm one more time or let's go get those bad guys again for this. That's always there. But, you know, you don't want to fight generational wars. And there's a book called A Thousand Years Revenge that talks about and just dis- dis- actually um, breaks down what happened with 9 11. And it, comes from a couple different viewpoints of the FBI and the CIA and everything that they saw and how some of the crosstalk didn't happen. And it, it's a very good read. It's, it's long, but it's a very good read. And, you know, I mean, as a soldier, you, you I mean, I can say it, you know, Anajundi in Arabic or just we sold out French and just be like, Hey man, I'm just a soldier. But no, as a person, it's, um, it's something that I knew at some point had to end and no matter how it ended, it would always there would always be a bitter sting of, but I could have got one more in for my guys or went back and had some revenge in this valley, this area. But you know, we are where we are now, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna regret or get angry over that stuff. I'm just gonna continue uh, moving forward. Now, what about? 
what you're witnessing amongst you know the the army in general are you seeing a kind of uh, ripple effect from that or or are you not you know in um i can say in special operations there for a moment people i can say where i work in special operations people wanted to go back they were like ah, i want to go back and get some for my friend who passed because 2019 for in 2018 for us was very violent we lost people um we had a lot of injuries so people wanted to go back and get it and they had their moment where it's like okay but then it's all right job has shifted now we look at this and we're doing this and our guys now are busier than they were during deployments our guys are constantly gone now to different theaters and there's more to the world than iraq and afghanistan and i think that's one thing that we are seeing in special operations is that our job doesn't stop it's just now we're looking in a different uh, battle space. Now, forgive my ignorance, being a firefighter, not a soldier, but um, 10th Mountain Group, is that a reserve unit? Is that the same one that Tim Kennedy transitioned into? Uh, no, so uh, 10th Special Forces. So 10th Mountain is actually in Fort Drum, New York. 10th Special Forces Group is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And the reason we're called 10th Special Forces Group was to confuse the Russians. We were actually the first Special Forces Group ever made. We just called it 10th because then the Russians were like, where are the other nine? You confused an Englishman uh, too, so there we go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's where it came from. And yeah, Tim, um, I believe Tim was 7th group. Yeah, he was 7th group when he was active duty, and now he, I believe, is in 19th group in Texas, or it could be 20th. I'm not certain which one's there. I apologize on that. But uh, yeah, he is. Um, he's in National Guard um, over there. So you're either in active duty or National Guard if you're going to be a Green Beret. And Tim is a uh, National Guard Green Beret right now, still serving, still doing. Okay, so you're still in at the moment then, completely then? Yes, I am. I'm still active duty. And I retire July of 2023 will be my 20 years. So at 20 years, I will retire. And, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll find a different... Uh, <laughs> I'll find a different mountain to climb. Uh, I've been very fortunate in uh, my career as a Green Beret to travel and do and be exposed to some amazing people in different cultures. And as a father now and going in to do 50 for the fallen and working with different organizations, that's my goal now is to be the best father I can be and provide the best life for my wife and daughter that I can. Well, let's talk about 50 for the fallen then. So where did you get the concept and then educate us on the kind of philosophy behind it? Absolutely. Have you seen the movie Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman? I have. He ate 50 eggs. And I'm not going to lie to you. I did 50 miles because originally I, there was no, like, I must do 50 miles, like, moment thing for me. It was Paul Newman did 50 eggs. I can do 50 miles. I had never done a 50 miler. I had never trained for it. I had done around 35, 40, but never 50. And I wanted to give myself time to think. And dwell because it was May of 2020 and everybody was separated due to COVID. So I couldn't be with my people as much, you know, guys at group and just work. So I gave myself a time. I had explained it to my wife and went out and did this thing. And some friends of mine saw it and decided to do it with me remotely. Gunnar Peterson at the time before I moved to Tennessee, lived in LA. Gunnar did it on a treadmill and he's a monster for doing that. A friend of mine, Brandon Lilly did it in Kentucky 
a buddy, Bo Sandoval, who was with the UFC now at Texas A&M. He did it with his family over the weekend out there. My friend Ryan Mickler did it made at his house where they did one mile laps. And it was a way for us all to connect while we were still separated. That sprung board into, I finished it and I went to work and people saw it on the news and all those things. And then, um, people are like, I want to do one. I want to do this with you, you know? And the next thing I know, we're setting up for nine 11 in New York city. And we did 50 miles. The Yankees were you know, kind enough to let us start there. And we ended at ground zero and we did the 50 miles overnight there. And that's where I got what I was doing. And that's where it clicked for me truly because we're getting close to the Brooklyn bridge. We're crossing the Brooklyn bridge and people start talking and explaining what's going on and why they're doing this and who they're doing this for. And it got quiet. And that last 10 miles, people actually opened up and just let it go. And that's what I knew. That's what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And then a Memorial day of 22, you know, it just hit like this is for veteran and active duty mental health. Cause people, when we get together and we start to suck and suffer, we'll open up. And I have a saying, we find your solace through, you find your solace through suffering. And it's true. It's like, if you're working out or you're getting beat up all together, you share that kinship. And the next thing you know, you'll talk about it or you'll open up and you'll say something to someone there because they're going through it with you that you won't say to people just a normal conversation. You won't express yourself. And that happened a lot in Memorial Day. And we're doing a Wahoo in December where it's going to happen more. And the more we do this, I'm not looking for people to drum circle and cry. It's just take the time to break yourself down to get out of your ego. Because once you break down those walls, you really just open up to who you are and you find out we're all just the same people dealing, you know, and that's how 50 for the fallen got started. It was just a way to get myself away from my ego. And I was able to actually deal with things. And then other people have seen it and to liken it to fight club for a second. When, you know, Edward Norton's character who doesn't have a name and Brad Pitt's character, Tyler Durden, are beating each other up, but it's Ed Norton. There's a guy on the side said, can I go next? And people have started doing that with this 50 mile where they're like, man, I, I'm hurting. Man, I'm tired, but oh my gosh, I feel so good. When's the next one? And that really has galvanized into what we're doing in 2023. But that's how it started. Paul Newman. Cool Hand Luke, one of my favorite movies. He ate 50 eggs. We did 50 miles. But it really was enough time and distance to break yourself down. And we do it overnight because most of the time you're doing military operations, you're doing them at night. So start in the day, do it most during the nighttime, finish in the morning with the sun. And there's a little magic in it. I'll get you out to them. We're going to do one in Florida next year in 23. And I'd love for you to be involved in one and actually get to walk it. If you could do the one in Oahu, I, I, I know you're busy, but if you could do the one in Oahu, I, I would, I, you know, happily invite you for it um, or have you there. But come 23, we'll get you out to do one and then you can be like, okay, I get it. And you can bring along as many firefighters as you want because, you know, we all deal with stress. We just call it different things, but it's all the same stress to our brains and bodies.
I'd love to have you guys there. That'd be amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'd love to actually travel to somewhere else because Florida's beautiful, but it's flat. So I think it'd be more uh, more fun to go climb the mountains of Hawaii, to be honest. So maybe I'll yeah. be able to get over there next year. Um, but when you look at when you kind of deconstruct what you're doing, and I've had people like you know Jason McCarthy on from Go, Go Rock and uh, um, some other people that Rucking is one of their outlets. It, it basically goes against, and I've posted about this recently, everything that was advised during the pandemic. So, you know, we were told not to have community, don't go outside, don't exercise, close the parks, close the beaches, etc. So when you reverse that, which is the world's worst advice, <laughs> go to, to what you're doing, you've got community, you've got time in nature, you've got daylight, you've got conversation. I mean, you know, and you've got shared suffering, which we all know from your selection process from fire academies and orientations that that's what, what builds that camaraderie from that, that new hire group that lasts an entire career and beyond. So it makes perfect sense to me why, you know, you found that so healing, not only for yourself, but the people that join you. Yeah, and it goes back to who we are before we lived in houses and before everything, you know, I'm not going to say like, oh, everything was used to be not easy. Everything's easy now. No, but before it's what we did. We moved. We were nomadic, you know, that's what we did as a community. We'd hunt together. We would, you know, work and struggle together. That's all we're doing. And the whole time we do this 50 miles, minus if I'm, I'm singing George Michael, who I love George Michael, judge me if you want, I don't care. If I'm singing Careless Whisper or something at, you know, like 3 a.m. and we're all beat up in the mountains in Lake Tahoe, um, which happened, but we're together and it's good. And there's something to that. And when you disconnect and no phones are allowed, I have one to do updates and check in if we need. We have radios, but, and you're just with these people, you're just with those people. Everything else gets to go away. So you're able to really, connect with who you are by disconnecting from everything else so yeah what jason and goruk does that's that's amazing too because all these people come out they compete they get together and at the end of the day if you're feeling better that's all that matters it's the same if you do crossfit if you go and do the spartan races or tough mutters those are all amazing things because the whole time you're with people getting beat up but a smile's on your face so something good's happening so correct me if I'm wrong, every time you do a 50 for the Fallen event, there is a local charity based around where you're doing you know, the event itself that you're supporting. And the one coming up in Oahu is Pearl Haven. So tell me about you know, their their cause. I'll tell you about their um, CEO and her heart, and I'll tell you about their cause and the same thing. Jessica Munoz was a nurse who started seeing a lot of bad things in these kids and realized people are being trafficked and wanted to do something about it. And Pearl Haven was built and Pearl Haven takes in children who were trafficked and rescues them and then gives them counseling therapy, shows them how to live, gives them education, does all of the things that they should have had before their innocence in life was taken. And Jessica and her team, that's what they do. And it's an amazing organization and one that I'm humbled and honored to be with. And to be able to help raise money for them, like that's what it's about. 50 for the Fallen. Right now, you know, we're going to go over there. We're going to do this Ruck March. It's going to be great for us because we're going to be able to mentally and emotionally release and work through some stuff. But what we're able to do for those kids in that facility far outweighs the physical, you know, like, 
pain I'll put myself through for this one, whatever. Um, those kids every day are like, I don't know how to equate it because they're people who were trafficked, something that should never happen in 2022. And we're taking these kids away from those horrible situations and saying, people love you still. And there's people out there trying to give you everything you need to succeed. And it's happening in paradise. And that's what messes me up is they're rescuing people from Hawaii. They're rescuing people from other states. And they're bringing them to this amazing place. And they're saying, everything here is for you. And it was Tulsi who introduced me to them, actually. And she has a heart for it as well to help these people. And it's like, anything else I can do to help them, I want to. But I don't know. I mean, like, how do you wrap your head around that? I mean, I, I'll ask you the same thing. How, how do you wrap your head around the fact in 2022, we have people out there in America that are trying to steal. And as a father, it just gets me trying to steal the innocence and, you know, the life out of these kids. I, I just, I don't understand it. It goes back to just, I guess, bad people. But yeah, that's how Olinapua Pearl Haven. It's an amazing organization that is just trying to bring back the life and innocence from a child, which should never be stolen. Well, it's something that I, again, have been educated on doing this. I had um, Nick McKinley from Deliver Fund um, on. I had yeah. um, Tamia Naj, who was actually one a traffic woman from Hungary originally, and now she's in Canada working to to empower and you know to, to free other women who are trafficked. Then you, I had um, Aaron Hoff, who um, works on, I forget which island is in Hawaii, but he works with you know, the homeless and um, some of the poorer kids and getting them away from addiction and back on a, a true north path through CrossFit and some other things. And so there's these incredible humans. And I think what's so sad is the trauma that we're talking about as a child is the same trauma that your dad was suffering as a child. And what's sad is, as you said, we're at 2022, creating healthy relationships creating more stable homes trying to to nip that multi-generational trauma in the bud building rebuilding communities i don't hear any of these conversations happening on the the main stage and that's one of the reasons why i think tulsi is amazing i'm apolitical i fucking can't stand the left and the right i mean everyone that's put in front of us is just horrendous when you and i have worked alongside real leaders that you literally would would die for literally but she is to me one of the first people, and it's ironic because she's just, you know, removed herself from a party, um, which I think is probably the healthiest thing that you can do if you actually want to be a leader in this country, um, because she seems like she actually wants to be proactive and make a difference in the world. And that's what breaks my heart. Is As you said, it's 2022. We have an obesity epidemic. 70% of our country is obese or overweight. We have, you know, a horrendous suicide epidemic, an addiction epidemic. And yet it's the same, you know, throwing shit at each other, political arguments that we see on the television. And I think, you know, what you're doing, what all these organizations are doing, what politicians, and I don't even use that word, it's a horrible word, but people like Tulsi, leaders in the world that are trying to trying to get to the helm, um, I find that very exciting. I just hope that we can get enough people behind that movement that we can finally get someone at that kind of position that will start pushing these proactive things to stop trafficking and poverty in this country and addiction and all these other things that are terrorizing people behind the scenes when everyone's, you know, a lot of people are living this kind of facade, Disney-fied life. 
we just got to get back to being people. Everybody now is a digital character with a certain amount of, you know, words they're allowed to say in their post and they're no longer people. Uh, when I was dating my wife, I always told her, Hey, I don't like text messaging. She thought I was like, she's like, what are you 80? I'm like, no, I, I want to actually get to see you, you know, speak to you and, you know, have that. So I was always calling her and she's like, you can just text me that. And I still do that. I, I'm that commercial right now going on where they're like, you become your parents and the you know, the education guys like, don't, you don't have to call and say these things. You can text. I'm a call text or see in person kind of guy. We got to get back to that. Just knowing we're all people, man, like Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. You're just a human being. At the end of the day, you're trying to make your life better for the, your loved ones. We all need to realize that's who we are. It's the same thing to go back to Iraq, Afghanistan conversation. Like, we're just people. There are some bad people in the world. That's true. But most of us, if we got in a room and sat down with one another, we'd see that, hey, we're not that different, no matter who it is. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate this is where we are right now. But can we get back to it? Sure, because this isn't the Civil War where we have hundreds of thousands dying. This isn't, you know where you have people in one country saying these people in another country or even in their country are the cause of it. And they're trying to kill them all and take over a continent. It's not there right now. We're just against one another for whatever reason. And I think it's because we forgot that we're all just the same thing. We're just a person. Absolutely. Well, firstly to that commercial, I am literally the guy that will leave a voicemail and, and say my phone number on the voicemail as well. So yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> exactly the same place as you. But no, I agree 100%. And you know, I've said this even with this Ukrainian Russian thing. How many Russians truly woke up one day and was like, you know what, I think we need the Ukraine to make my life better? Probably almost none of them. So it's the tyrannical, tyrannical, you know, few that seem to kind of dupe the masses. And if the masses actually kind of take the hood off a little bit and look around and go oh you just want your kids to grow up safely and you just want food and you just want a roof over your head that's the same as i want you realize that actually as you said it's the masses that have the power and i'm not talking about you know sparking revolution it's just a an awareness revolution to make you realize that there are people that you employ to be in government buildings that i have witnessed dividing a country both left and right over and over again and we just have to take a step back and go wait a second repair those cracks join together and then push for for change in the really valuable areas of course the, the security of this country but the health of our children the education of our children you know the the uh, the mental health side i mean there's so many things that we could do that then would pay dividends on crime and you know all these other things that we've discussed yeah, we got to realize that we are still one nation under God, and that's whatever God you believe in. I'm, I'm, I'll just say it like that, you know. And we are still indivisible. We are together as a nation, you know, and we do want liberty and justice for all. And America is the freest country on earth, and we're trying to be the best we can be, and we're trying to get justice for everyone. And I understand that things have happened in the past, and America always wasn't the nicest of place to certain people, but. Man, we're trying to be that now and to be the best place we can be. And I truly think that if people realized, who are my neighbors? Who lives with me in my community? Who's my mayor? Let's get to that. Okay, cool. Do you know who your neighbors by their name? Do you know who they are? Do they know you? Because if you got down and just thought, okay, they're more than just a political sign in their yard. They're these people that I now know and I respect. And 
you know, may admire, may love, may dislike, may respect though, because we have different leanings. It doesn't matter because we're all just people. I mean, growing up in Southern Ohio was amazing for that because I had people around me in my small town. We didn't agree on everything, of course, but we were all still one small town, one community. So when something happened, everybody was there for each other. Um, I remember being very young and they, the church we went to thought that a house, a tree fell on our house. It was in a very violent windstorm and it wasn't, it was near our house. It fell close to it, but it didn't. But I remember people barging at our door, banging it down. Like, are you okay? Like thinking like the worst had happened. We wouldn't, I don't know if we do that these days. And that's what's sad. Like we need to be able to get back to one another and just know your neighbors. I think if you start doing that, a lot of this other stuff can go away because you find out like, okay, I'm, I've got my neighbors, I got my community, we're good, and we may disagree on certain things, but that's still my neighbor. I still like having Bob over there or Jim over there or Sally, whatever you want to say. And if we can get back to that, I think we'd be a better people. Absolutely. It reminds me of the Grenfell fire in London. When that happened, there was a, a documentary on it, and you saw all these leaders in the community, whether it was, you know, religious leaders or other leaders. But for example, on the religious side, you had people open up, you know, Hindu temples, synagogues, you know, mosques, churches, because they were people that just wanted to help. And I think that's what we need to remind ourselves. I mean, people romanticize about 912 for good reason. That's truly who we are before we kind of get pulled into our day-to-day activities and kind of forget that community element. So I agree 100%. Yeah. I mean, think about when you go to England when they were being bombed out during World War II. Nothing mattered at that point but taking care of one another. Didn't matter who you supported, who you wanted to be the PM, what your opinions are on certain things. Everybody was just taking care of one another. And luckily, we're not there right now. Luckily, we're in a place where our biggest fights we're having are on the, um, the magical things we have in our hand that are little, these little boxes that talk to the sky for us and come back down and I can share a video or something with someone around the world instantaneously. And that's where we're fighting through. And we just need to get back to understand that if we didn't have the social media and all this stuff, a lot of these things we have that are issues, we wouldn't have. We'd be okay, which means we're okay now. We just have to realize it. Absolutely. 100%. Well, I want to get us a few few closing questions, but just before we do, um, Tulsi was the one that connected us. So talk to me about, you know, how you guys met. And if you want, you know, tell the people listening about her as a leader through your eyes. Okay. Um, Tulsi and I met through a friend of mine who was in another special operations unit where Tulsi was working at the time. She's uh, still active duty. And she was working there at this unit. And he's a friend of mine and connected us. And connected us because he knew what I was doing and wanting to do with 50 for the Fallen. And her heart for giving and being a um, leader, like, it's really who she is. I'm not talking political. I'm talking just as a person. From what I've witnessed, that's who this woman is. She is Tulsi. There's no face, no nothing. It's just her. And, you know, that was a... That was a nice surprise. And where she is now as a leader and as a person, like I'm really excited to see where she goes. I think that I'm not talking politics. Uh, luckily in the military, 
you know, a lot of us don't, I'm not going to on that side. I'm just going to say like who she is as an individual and a person to me and where she could go. I'd love to see it. I think that she has a great passion for helping and the best leaders are first, the best helpers. And she truly is a servant leader. There's nothing that she is going to do. Nothing she's going to ask to be done that she hasn't done herself or that she would do. She's doing the 50 miler in Oahu and she's taking time away from other things that she is doing because she committed to do this and she's training and she's setting up to do it. And that to me says a lot for someone who is very busy doing other things to say, and honestly, when it started, Hey guy, I just met, you're doing this. You're going to be in Oahu. Guess what? I'm doing it with you. And since then has content, you know, has trained and kept herself up and she'll be there doing that fit every step of the 50 miles with me. And that to me says a lot. And as we do what I call the rucksack mambo where everyone talks to everybody and you kind of flow in this state of who's walking with who during those 18 hours, everybody who does the event is going to get a chance to talk to her and see who she is as a person. And they're all going to say the same thing. Oh yeah, yeah. She's just Tulsi. They may say, Oh, I didn't know her was, she did that. Or I didn't know this about her life or that, but they're all going to say at the end, Oh yeah, man, she's just Tulsi. She's great. Um, not to throw platitudes at her feet, but that's what I've seen out of her is this, this amazing individual who will, you know, I mean, she, I mean, as Jocko would say, she'd eat last. She'll make sure her, you know, people are first. She'll take care of everybody. And then, you know, she'll be there. But as a leader, from what I've seen of her, I've not worked with her. And, you know, I've not been deployed with her or worked with her, but I have through this. An amazing person, an amazing leader. We've had conversations at 2 a.m. my time because I couldn't get something off my head. And she's like, yeah, let's talk. She's somebody I can call at 2 a.m. And I have. So it's an amazing thing. I'm very fortunate to know her. And I'm, I'm curious and I'm hopeful to see where she goes. Beautiful. Thank you. I can't stand talking about politics either. And I think leadership is, is separate from that. What I think of politics is people screaming at each other. And I don't want any part of that at all. But you Brits a... do it totally different. Oh, oh yeah, love. exactly. I would, I would pay <laughs> money to sit there in parliament with popcorn and just watch the two sides, Labour and Tory, just go at each other and be like, wow, this is crazy. But you know, does that system work either? No. I mean, you've seen the shit show that's been our leadership, you know, the last oh. few weeks. So. Yeah, but it's so entertaining. Like, truly, it is. It's people watching. It's like sitting in the busiest airport and being like, wow, this is nuts. Or at the dinner table at like Thanksgiving and people are yelling at each other over whatever the devil. You're like, okay, I'm just going to sit back and eat and watch, but this is great. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I really appreciate your perspective. She's coming on the show. Um, and I'm excited because, like I said, I've been very, very, you know, middle of the road my whole time when I've had you know, some sort of voice through through talking to guests on here, but it's just this, the way that we choose our leaders in the UK, the way that we choose our leaders in the US is broken. The system is broken and we keep being presented the same kind of person, regardless of what color the tie is. And when I started hearing Tulsi on Jocko and, and Joe Rogan and some of these other shows that I initially was introduced to her on, for the first time, I was like, Walk softly, but carry a big stick. This is this is the kind of person that I think that stands in the middle and will actually pull people back together again. So, I'm extremely excited when I get my opportunity to to finally have a conversation with her and you know lead her down the path through the behind the shield lens, as it were. Yeah, I think you're gonna have a great time with her. Uh, her sister is another amazing conversation if you want somebody to talk with. But yeah, 
you, I'll, I can't wait for that one. I'm going to, I cannot wait to hear you guys talk. That's going to be a good one. Yeah. Actually, I've spoken to V once already, but I haven't made a persuader to come on yet because I think of, of what she was doing as far as yeah. her profession with, with, yeah. with some certain key figures, but down the road, I'm hoping I can get her on as well. Beautiful. All right. Well, then let's transition some closing questions so I can be mindful of your time. Um, you mentioned uh, the 1000 Year Revenge as a book. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? Um, starting with 1000 Year Revenge, it's very dry. It's big, but it's worth it because it breaks everything down and um, in a non-emotional way. So that's a good one. Uh, I'll be corny and say The War of Art just because it's a great book. And then um, I'm a, I'm a Kerouac fan. So, you know, I'm going to tell everyone to go read some Kerouac finish with big sir, uh, read all three. But, um, uh, what other book, the power of habit is an interesting read. And it just kind of breaks down people from their daily life to industry and corporate and like businesses and a third of the book is references. So everything in that book is set, referenced, and that's a fun one. That's a good one to read. Brilliant. Actually, I don't think I don't think any of those have been maybe the power of habit, I'm not sure, but um yeah, I mean the thousand years revenge sounds like it's a fascinating one. Um all right, well then the next question, is there a film and or documentary that you love? Uh yeah, film for me is Blues Brothers absolutely love blues brothers i could pretty much quote it verbatim that is my deployment movie that's a movie i loved as a kid and that is one that i would recommend over and over and over again and then uh sir um sir david attenborough's planet earth for a documentary just to realize how cool this place is we live on and how lucky we are to be here watch that in hd in the biggest tv you have sit back and just suck it in because it lets you know that we are these tiny little organisms on this blue hurtling rock through space, but we got it really good and we need to take care of this place. Absolutely. And your cracked iPhone screen isn't as traumatic as you think it is. No, especially when you look at nature and what goes on out there in the real world. Um, The first time I watched that, and spoiler alert, there's a polar bear that dies. But when I saw that polar bear that was starving and going through and living, and I'm like, that's life. That's real life. Like this thing is out there hunting. It is a carnivore. So everything it eats has to be alive. And it, um, it dies and you see it starve and you, they come back to it. And it's dead. And it's like, that's real life. We got it really good here. We got it really, we got it really easy. Well, David Amber is one of my uh, kind of pipe dream guests. My, my sister actually edits for BBC Wildlife. So oh, you know, wow. I have a kind of pseudo connection, but I mean, he's David Amber. <laughs> I'm yeah. a fireman sitting in Ocala, Florida. Um, but we shall see. But I mean, the, the, the I forget the, the documentary he did, but it spans his whole career. And you see some of the ecological changes, the environmental changes that he's witnessed firsthand. And after watching the genesis, the kind of rebirth at the beginning of the pandemic, when we all stopped driving and flying and everything else, um, it, it breaks my heart that we just discarded that message. So um, that would be another incredible conversation to, to listen to a pioneer like him who's truly seen through his own eyes. It's not propaganda. It's not politicized. It's just in the 50s, this was going on. In 2020, this is what's going on. Yeah, that'd be a good one. That really would. Uh, he'd be a, he's a guy, I always think, who do I want to have a beer with? 
who do I want to sit and have a beer with? He's up there for me. He's up there. Teddy Roosevelt is another one for me. I just love to sit and have a beer and just let them go. But uh, yeah, Planet Earth, David Attenborough. That's yeah, that's amazing one uh, for a book as well. They've have, they got a three volume series on Teddy Roosevelt's life. Um, that's one to read. And just or pot or if you want to do Audible and listen to it because it's quite long. Listening to the man that Teddy Roosevelt was and all that he did, that's something that's amazing. I mean, the guy took a gunshot to the chest, went and did a rally speech, and then sought help. I mean, you, you cut from a different cloth. But, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, book series and someone to have a beer with would be uh, Teddy for me, who talked softly and carried a big stick, which is where it comes from. Beautiful. Well, speaking of the Blues Brothers, if you ever end up at Universal Studios with your kids when they get a little bit older, there is a Blues Brothers act, and they'll come in the old beat up please card, and they go to a stage and they do a bunch of the songs and they drive off again. So that might be a little kick for you when you get the opportunity. Oh, it absolutely will. We're uh, my wife loves Disney, so we're Disney heads. So we've been to Disney World and Land many times. My daughter isn't even two yet and has been to Disneyland because it's close to Colorado multiple times, and we'll go again for her birthday. But the Blues Brothers, I will go see that because Jake and Elwood, like that's as good as it gets for me. <laughs> All right. Well, then speaking of awesome people, the next question, is there a person or other people that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes. First is Dr. Nick Bartley, who I spoke about earlier, who was our performance psychologist and is now a performance psychologist for I do believe it's the Aurora firefighters um, just because he's seen it both. He's worked with firefighters and first responders and with special operations and his work in um, I'd say uh, mental performance for our professions and yours. He has seen both sides at top tier, the highest tier levels in the military. I would go with him, Jessica Munoz and what she has done at uh, Pearl Haven and how she started that and where it is two and then three for an interesting conversation and someone I think you would have a lot of fun talking to would be the chief of staff for Spartan race, Dan McDonald, who's down near you. Um, very, very interesting individual who was a competitor. Who's now the chief of staff of Spartan and what he is doing behind the scenes at Spartan and how he is evolving some of their philanthropic endeavors. That's a guy that you, yeah. And he's, he's right there in your backyard. Beautiful. Well, thank you. I had Joe DeSena on a while ago now, but and I want to say maybe Dan was even involved in the communication with that whole thing. But um, yeah, I will definitely reach out to all of those. So if you're able to help me connect, that'd be phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Will. I'll give you all three. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure we, we can find you, make sure we um, the uh, 50 for the Fallen, and obviously we'll talk about the fundraising element for Hawaii that you're uh, working on right now. What do you do to decompress? Besides 50 miles in 18 hours? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, after that. Is there anything else? Yeah. Uh, I, I like to play with my daughter. I like to spend time with her and my wife because that you know, no matter what's going on, that's what matters in the world is being with them because that's my world. That's my family. Uh, I love to cook. And um, a buddy of mine, Keegan Gerhard, 
who was a Food Network celebrity and has a place in Denver when I came back from Iraq in 2011, brought me up there and kind of taught me the ropes because I needed it at the time to decompress. So I cook. Um, I play with my daughter. And I got a bow behind me because every now and then I like to go out and uh, throw some arrows. And um, that's a great meditation itself. I've been in yoga. I've been doing yoga and meditation for 16 years. But taking a bow, pulling back and releasing an arrow is a very meditative state because the entire time, all you can think about is that sight or the tip of the arrow and where you're going to let it go to and how it's going to release. If you think about too much other things, you're going to hold too long and shake. If you're rushing in your mind, you're going to throw the shot. So everything has to be a meditative state. That to me is one of the um, best things somebody can do when they need to just get away, get a bow, get a target. And even it doesn't matter if you're good, just start releasing arrows. The next thing you know, you'll start breathing better. You'll start dialing it in. So I would, I'd highly recommend that. But if you want a good thing, Come out and do 50 miles in 18 hours. That'll let you disconnect and really reconnect with who you are. Now, you talked about doing yoga meditation for 16 years. What got you into yeah. that? And then what types of those disciplines do you practice yourself? Yeah, um, I got into it by an ex-girlfriend, of all things, who was an instructor. And she got me into it. And I got bit immediately. And I started bringing yoga mats with me when I would deploy or go places and... I would meditate because I had to figure out who I was because that's what you do on the mat. And I went from that to doing a bunch of hot yoga and really getting into breathing and being able to connect with who I am through it. It was very beneficial. And I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Brian Peters, who does breath work and sauna and in ice baths. And he was a professional football player for the Houston Texans who left the NFL to do this. I would also recommend Brian for here because um, very intelligent individual, shockingly intelligent, went to Northwestern and decided to play professional sports, left the NFL to now do this. Um, but yoga and meditation for me, a lot of it went to hot yoga. A lot of it went to a place here called Cambio in Colorado Springs. That's donation-based. That's an amazing organization. And now the meditation goes to, sounds funny, but a cold shower, wake up in the morning, go as cold as I can, and just slow breath, control my breath, control my breathing, control my day kind of stuff. And um, still find myself when I can with the job and you know, still being special operations, being setting up these 50-mile rucks and then being a father and husband, finding time to get on the mat or just to meditate. And five to 10 minutes of disconnecting everything and meditating goes a long way. I think more people can do that and actually be, be better in their day. If they have five minutes to scroll Instagram, turn your phone off for five minutes, set a timer, and just take time to figure out what's going on in you. Absolutely. Yeah, I love Headspace. It's a great kind of app for the, the monkey-minded of us, you know, that are trying to find our way into meditation. And it's funny because if you actually participate in Headspace long enough, you realize that the silence gets longer and longer and longer because you don't need to be guided as much. But I used to yeah. use that. I've come back from a call that say it was, you know, a fire or cardiac arrest or something and you're totally amped up and it's three, four in the morning. And just by clicking into those rather than staying up and watching TV or, you know, eating ice cream, 
putting that in my headphones when I was in the dorm, I would actually be able to drift back to sleep again. It was just disconnecting like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, you have to. Um, my wife uses Headspace sometimes when um, she has to sleep and I'll hear it. And she's either at the bookstore or she's at the seaside hotel and it's talking to her about now let's imagine, let's do. And it's great because it does. It just shifts you back into that. Um, I've got some breathing exercises that work for me. But for her, that headspace, it's amazing. Yeah, that's great. Brilliant. All right. For people listening, I'm sure that they would you know, love to help with, when it comes to either participating in 50 for the Fallen, for donating. I know that you've got a big drive at the moment to fund the actual trip to Oahu. Um, so where are the best places for people to find as far as the website and then also social media? So for the website, I'll start there. It's the numbers five zero, the number 50, and then the words for the Fallen. So 54thefallen.com, you'll see everything for the site. The Instagram is 54thefallen, the number's five zero, and then underscore four, underscore the, underscore fallen, because that's how Instagram works. And you can see everything there. Everything populated on Twitter and Facebook and others comes from the Instagram page, which again, I'm the one who's running all of that. So if you need to contact or know anything about the events, you can reach me directly at chad at 50forthefallen.com. I answer all the emails. And if you message me on Instagram, I'll be the one talking to you there. If you have a question about any of the events, if you have a question about Oahu, before you want to donate anything, I want you to go to the website. I want you to look at Ho'ola Napua, and I want you to go to my Instagram. And then I want you to see if that's something you want to do. As an active duty member of the United States military, I cannot ask you for money. If you would like to donate, donate. Other people can ask for money for me. I cannot do that and will not do that. But on the site, you will see two fundraisers. One is for our travel and one is for Ho'ola Napua. I have a very lofty goal for fundraising for Ho'ola, Ho'ola Napua or Pearl Haven. I want to give them $50,000. I want to give them something that makes a difference to those kids who are there, who are rescued from trafficking. $50,000 can do a lot for those kids. If you want to join up, join up. If you want to come to the event, once again, email me, chad at 50forthefallen.com, and we'll get you on the team. I'm not going to say no. I'm only going to ask, can you do 50 miles? Can you make that movement? And if you can't make it now in 2023, we have more events coming up, and I want to see you there because we all go through it. You ain't got to be in the military. You ain't got to be a first responder. You could be a housewife who for 30 years raised kids, had it, did it, and now you want to come out and do an event and be a part of this? Let's do it. Now, the goal of 50 for the Fallen is to help the active duty, vet, active duty and veterans who struggle with mental health to find an outlet. But everyone goes through it so everyone can be a part of it. So don't think just because you didn't do those things, you don't belong. Everyone does. Well, you touched on being excited about 2023. So what are some of the, the events that you're looking at next year? Myself and Spartan Race, we're going to be doing at least four 50-mile events tied into four of their events. And doing that, we are going to raise funds for local charities. And I'm turning 50 for the Fallen into a nonprofit so that we can start attacking these problems head on myself. I have found that it's tough right now because a lot of nonprofit charters can't work with one another. I understand it. I want to be able to help more. 
So I want to always be able to help the active duty and veteran population struggling with mental health. But everywhere we go, we will always give back to those local communities. And next year, you'll see at least one a quarter. And we're going to be going up and down some mountains. So if you want to jump in on one of those, we're going to have it. And then we're also going to have um, some very interesting ones partnered with Spartan Race events where you can come out, do a 50 miler, which would be 50 miles, 18 hours. And they'll always lead into the main events of the Spartan races, which to me, I can't wait. I think it's going to be a big, it's, it's going to be a great time with a bunch of amazing people. Beautiful. Well, one more thing that just could pop in my head before I let you go. You have this, you know, powerful story from basically your father's childhood through to losing not only brother soldiers, but also civilians to the mental health crisis. Now you're standing at the tail end of your career. You know, you're a lot older, a lot wiser. You know, you found counseling, you do yoga, you do meditation. You've got all these things now on top of the rucking. When you look back with all the lessons you've learned, what do we need to change to start moving the needle on the mental health crisis through your eyes? To move the needle on mental health for Chad, it's first to realize it's okay to have a mental health issue, to have a problem and say, yeah, I've got this. I'm okay. Because we all at some point in our life might break a bone, might bang ourselves up and we go see the doctor for that. We need to understand that if we can do that for our body, we should be able to do that for our mind. And if everyone today is all into fitness, well, if you're going to the gym and working out your body, when you go talk to somebody, you're working out your mind. And one is not linked. I mean, they're linked together. One is not inescapable from the other. So those are the things we need to do. And then once you understand that it's okay to talk and it's okay to breathe out and you know, it's okay to have a problem. Then find those people that you can share it with. And they may not be from the same background, but it doesn't matter. Just find someone or a group that you can talk with and trust and actually do it. Put the phone down, go talk to them face to face, have that conversation. And I think you'll be better off. I think one of the things that, again, I've, I've kind of evolved and learned through this as well is a lot of our, especially men, but obviously some women as well, when you have that, oh, mental health is a weakness philosophy and that's a wall that we can't penetrate in the conversation, I go to the flow state. Um, I had a, a guy on Gelg. Logan Gelgrich, excuse me, who was a baseball player and he was talking about, and it was, wasn't a mental health conversation, he was talking about a flow state moment he had in his baseball career. And when he kind of laid out what you need to get into a flow state, it was the, you know, thousands and thousands of reps of a skill. It was the stress, which, you know, both of our professions have. But the third thing was a clear mind. So I think that the other thing in this whole mental health conversation is you will be a better performer as a Green Beret, as a firefighter, if you go through, you know, talking about your issues and, and meditating and breath work and whatever works for you, once you kind of calm that maelstrom in your mind, you will actually be able to get to a better place and perform at a higher level in the profession that you've chosen. And that's another part, another kind of arm of this conversation that you don't hear discussed as much, but I think it's a great tool to approach some of these high performers that have that resistance to the mental health, you know, conversation itself. 
I, I would kick back and say that's for everybody because everybody wants to be the best parent, husband, wife they can be. That's something we all need to do because our most important profession is being that person. It's not, I mean, that's what it is to me. This is just Chad speak, but I got to be the best husband, father I can be first. That way I know that I'm good at my, I'm good at home. And then I got to ripple out from that stone in the water. The next ripple is, you know, how am I putting food on the table? How am I providing? What am I doing? Like Ryan Mickler says, protect, uh, provide, uh, preside. I have to do those things and I've got to be the best father, husband I can be first. And I got to do that by having a clear mind and not being able to always dwell on the past or not being able to release mentally and emotionally. And that's for everybody. And then once you, and that's the thing with this podcast. And when you're talking to people, everyone needs to realize that we can all be better people and we should always strive to be the best we can be at who you are first. And that's one thing for me that I know that I'm still trying to do on a daily basis. I'm still trying to be the best husband and father I can be. And if I keep trying to do that, the other stuff gets better too. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Well, Chad, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. We started talk talking before I hit record. As with some of my law enforcement guests and people that are still active duty, you can't just go on Google and the whole resume and life story comes up. So I had a few notes, but I wasn't sure where this conversation was going to go. And it's been an amazing, amazing chat, almost two hours. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Well, absolutely, James. And I, I can't thank you enough for giving me this opportunity to speak about 50 for the Fallen and what we're doing for Ho'ol and Napua. And I'm going to get you out to one to 23. And we're going to have a lot of fun uh, talking and chatting for that 50 miles in 18 hours. So I look forward to it. Mm -hmm.